that she's not going to be with. Blog Talk Radio. Hi, welcome to Teach Me to Talk with Laura and Kate. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech language pathologist, and we are waiting on Kate to join us. There was uh, static on the line, and so she is trying to call back in, and I think she's here now. Are you there? I'm here. Yay, it all worked out. Is that better? Yeah, it was. it was a very strange connection. So can you hear me okay now? I can hear you okay now, so that's great. And our call dropped earlier, so I'm glad we're on a different line now. Okay. How was your trip? Welcome home to America, Miss International Traveler. <laughs> oh, yes, that's me. Well, it is recently. Um, It was really, really nice. It was really, really special to get to be at, at Becky's wedding. It was beautiful. And I was really glad that we went. Yeah, it was very sweet and very pretty and just a blessing to be there. So, Well, I'm glad I haven't gotten to ask you details since we didn't get to talk very long earlier, so I will call you back after the show and and get the longer version. Okay. And while you were gone, I did that little speaking event that we were supposed to do together. Oh, my. How was that? And I'll have kind of a funny story about it. So we get there, and, you know, it's a, it's a I thought it was a conference for parents. So I did a, a presentation that really is more for parents, more general, not as specific, certainly not as technical, had a lot of the same things that we talk about here on the show, but, again, not in depth, just kind of, the big ideas, the big points that I think that right. we should have all parents know. Well, people start coming in, and I just started asking and just introducing myself to people, which I typically do, but I just started saying, are you a parent or a therapist? And then there were mostly therapists there. Oh. And so I kind of thought, oh, my goodness, I have the wrong thing. What am I going to do? And then a mom, then a mom did come in, or she had kind of been in and out, but she had an older son who was 10. You know, to me, he looked like school age. And he had Down syndrome, of course. It was was sponsored by Down syndrome of Louisville and Southern Indiana. And she says to me, he's still nonverbal. I'm here really to figure out exactly what I can do to help him talk. And then I'm thinking, oh, boy. And so then the next mom that came in said, I asked her what she did, and she said she had been a special education teacher for, oh, gosh, 17 years, 19 years, whatever. And I'm thinking, okay, she's a teacher person. And then she says, but I have a three-year-old who just aged out of first steps who is still nonverbal, so I'm here to learn all those steps. And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, I have prepared the wrong conference. So I looked at Johnny, and he's already kind of reading my mind because, you know, we kind of do that thing where we share one brain. And he, I mean, all I had to say was, I'm switching what I'm doing. And he immediately Mm -hmm. went and got my laptop, came back inside. Thank goodness I took it because I had just taken that parent talk on a little memory stick because Jill told me that she had everything ready. So I switched and did a four-hour building verbal imitation in toddlers 
the two-hour version and <laughs> tried to do uh, things that would be more relevant to children with Down syndrome. And I have a lot of autism-specific information in the, the conference, you know, that I did all fall. But it was right. just I've never been able to – I've never had to switch like that, but I felt like it was the right thing to do. And then I was thinking, boy, if Kate had been here, that would have been harder – to do not that we would have done great with it because really we talk about some version of that every single week. <laughs> yeah. But Laura, as always, kind of, I would just follow your lead and go. You're right. <laughs> that makes perfect sense. <laughs> but fun. I had a lot of fun. I had a lot of fun, and there was a dad there who's a big advocate who's uh, who speaks internationally now on Down syndrome. Great guy's an attorney from Louisville, Mark Leach, and I saw his little girl. I was her speech pathologist in first steps. And so I got to see him, and I haven't seen him in a long time. And uh, he, was, he was talking about how well Juliet's doing now, and I thought that was so great. And he you know, chimed in and said I was her therapist and how great she had done. And it was so interesting to me because when I think back about that whole building verbal imitation in toddlers, a lot of that started in their living room. Because Juliet was a little girl, so smart with Down syndrome, and she had, you know, probably close to 50 signs by the time she was two, which is a lot. And she was a kid that I could. Oh, I remember you time. talking about her back when you saw yeah. her. Yeah. And that is impressive. Yeah, I mean, she was mm-hmm. she she was a great signer, and and her cognition for her was really moving along. But she was it was hard to teach her to vocalize. And so so many of those little in between things when I would really struggle and really scramble and think, This little girl cannot go to words. What am I gonna do? And so it was just kind of full circle and kinda of nice to think about that. And I haven't really thought about it in that way until I saw the dad and he said, You know, I know so much of this stuff, it's what you exactly what you did with my little girl and I thought, Yeah, you're exactly right. So yeah. <laughs> Figured it out on her. Thank you very much. <laughs> I do remember that chart that I carried around in my little. Uh, every year, I would move it from my new, from my old planner to my new planner. A lot of those handwritten notes I think were in their living room, and so it was just really cool to see that and experience that. And it was it was fun. It was nice. And so the people from that day felt so bad for them too because they didn't have a handout. I didn't take any handouts that. Um, were relevant to that topic, so I hope they'll email me and get the slides. But I saw some of our old friends from when we both worked in southern Indiana, so that was kind of fun, too. Oh, really? Cool. That was fun. I'll have to tell you those names after the show. But um, Okay. It was, it was kind of a fun day. A fun. Well, it wasn't kind of a fun day. It was a fun day, so... I haven't done a parent. Well, what I thought was going to be a parent thing in a long time. Yeah, so much the word got out, man. They wanted specifics. (laughs) I know. But I'm so glad that they told me. You forgot to mention that. (laughs) I know. (laughs) And then Jill laughed. She said, the organizer for the event, she said, I had the same thing happen to me last year. I went for what I thought was going to be a parent event, and there were 20 people there, and 19 people were teachers. And so she said, I did exactly what you did and kind of scrambled. And found something that was more relevant to what, because you, I would, I would have hated to have presented all that general stuff without, with knowing that there were people there for very specific information. So I hope they got it. I hope it was. I hope it was. I've never had that happen before, and it was. I can't say I want it to happen again, but it's all been okay. 
I'm sure it went very well. Well, that's cool. It was cool. It was good. Um, all right. I wanted to say, kind of in our announcement portion, myeit.com is up and running, and it is going well. And so I, right now, our therapy guides are all ones that I've done, but we have some great ones in the works. A PT colleague of ours is doing one with Easter activities. And so always, I, I can't wait to see these OT and PT uh therapy guides and see how they're going to turn out and what their spin on some of the same activities that we do would look like, and then we'll get new ideas about how we can tweak the stuff we're doing a little bit. So I'm so excited about that. So I wanted to mention that. And then do you have anything to say before we get going with today's topic? Uh, no, I, my poor Hoosiers lost this past week, but hopefully we're going to recover and come back. It was a painful, painful loss, but oh well, it had to happen eventually, so it did. That's it. Well, I think, still think IU is a big contender, and I'm I'm not going to discuss my team. We'll just move right along. I'm still a fan, <laughs> but I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm no longer discussing college basketball except to cheer you on this year. <laughs> That's right. We're all, we're still hanging in there. We have some big game, games coming up. Ohio yeah. State and Michigan. Yeah. So. We're doing great. Yeah. We get to start over at tournament time. It doesn't matter. Right. All right. Moving right along, there are three articles that we're going to talk about today, and these are three things that are loosely related, and I want to try to tie them all together because they are three, again, three recent posts that I've found that people have sent to me or I've just seen on someone else's page, and I thought, gosh, those those ideas or those things are certainly worth discussing here on the podcast. The first one that a mom sent to me was last week, and it's an article from apraxia-kids.org, and that's a website. If if anyone listening um, hasn't been there before, that is certainly worth your time. It's a website devoted to childhood apraxia speech, and I like how that site is organized because you can click whether you are a parent or a professional and then get content relevant to that. And so, and I've clicked on both of those, and some things really do overlap, but I love it, and it's a site that I've used for a long time, and it's one that parents, you know, when I've referred parents there, they've really liked it and have reported that it's been beneficial for them. And you've been to that site before, Kate, right? Yes. Oh, yeah. I've used it and yeah. have um, encouraged parents to check it out. Yes. Good website. So it is a good website, and this is uh, an article that's on there, and actually a parent of a sweet, sweet, sweet little girl that I saw this summer. Uh, she's from out of state, and her family, her mom, her in for a three-day um, assessment or a visit, and she was here, and she, the mom and I, you know, of course, have emailed back and forth, and this little girl is just thriving, but she was a little girl who... The mom had previously bought some materials, and she lives in a state where they don't do early intervention in the summer. And so I think I've talked about her before on the show. 
and she um, wanted to do a visit specifically in the summer so that they could continue their their speech and again because she wasn't getting ongoing services in the summer and um, she had a diagnosis of apraxia and the mom had ordered some stuff and again she had not had a completely 100% positive experience with the speech pathologist that her daughter was saying before. So she got here and it was one of those things where uh, mom had bought the therapy manual and building verbal imitation in toddlers, and it was so cute because she was saying, I can't get past level six. We're stuck on level six here. So it's so cute for a mom to use that terminology back to me. And she could mm-hmm. not get her little girl past the verbal routines. I mean, she would say some words, and she would pop out some words occasionally, but she really could not get over that hump of direct imitation. And that was really... Um, hard for her mom, you know, to wrap her arms around and think, and and so much of what she read on the Internet she felt like was so negative about her daughter's diagnosis, and and she had a medical diagnosis too, and about her specific speech diagnosis, which was childhood apraxia speech or apraxia or motor planning problems. And so she and I, we had a great three days. She made awesome progress while she was here. She learned how to imitate some words, and I got that on videotape, and that was awesome for me because I showed that footage all fall along in in that conference. Um, But she sent me the article to say, and it was from this website, that just one positive encounter with even one therapist was typically influential enough to have a significant positive positive effect on how a parent adapted to knowing that um, their child had, you know, a speech-language delay or disorder, and then empowering the parent to move forward and adjust and then learn how to work with their child and, again, really be an advocate and a supporter and then, you know, part of that whole therapeutic process and isn't that great to have a study that confirms that don't you think that's just awesome that they've linked you know all of that evidence-based practice to that a parent could just have one therapist who was in their mind positive and um, encouraging and that would be enough. And the the study talked about, too, that a lot of times parents felt like their overall experience with maybe the educational system, with, you know, getting their child for school-based services and those kinds of things, that overall that those they might characterize that as negative. But just having one bright spot in, in all of that was what made the difference and what made the parent feel good about working with their child and want to really um, dig in and do the hard work. And I I just think that's such a great message for all of us. I I did look at the study. I wasn't wasn't totally clear on exactly what it, it told us, just that the one positive experience um, Let me talk about the details then. Here we go. Okay. I don't want this. I want this to be positive for people. Okay. 
There were 11 parents. Now, granted, this is a teeny little study. It's not like millions and millions and millions of people, but 11 parents of children. And, again, this is related to a specific diagnosis. Children with apraxia participated in these in-depth interviews. And they, the participants were um, interviewed them as couples and as father and mother separately to kind of tease out what was a parental feeling versus what was a mommy or a daddy thing. And so they were asked to really give these narrative interpretations or answers to the questions rather than kind of a yes-no thing. Because, you know, sometimes when you do studies or even when you hear about things on TV, the headline will be, you know, really shocking or something, and you'll think, I can't believe that study revealed that. And then when you find out what the question was that people have to answer, you think, well, no wonder that really led, um, you know, led that answer to be that just based on how the question was worded. Well, with this study, it wasn't like that because they did these in-depth things and they didn't just ask parents yes or no or objective question, you know, they really let it be, uh, they let the parents talk and really explain how they felt at different phases of getting their child evaluated. And so the the articles really um, talks about the phases that parents go through, the reaction phase and then the transition phase. Um, you know, the reaction phase is when the parents first learned that their child had a diagnosis and would have a problem, and then the transition phase is when they were working through all of that and they, you know, go through that whole, uh, some of those words seem like the five stages of grief, you know, where they have to really accept it and question it, you know, all those, all those things. I'm not a psychologist. I can't remember those off the top of my head. But then it led to the integration phase, which is really educating themselves about how their child, um, what the outcomes could be, helping their child by starting to participate in therapy, working through, you know, whatever negativity or, you know, conflicting feelings or challenges they had, and then, you know, really starting therapy. And, and one thing that they looked at is cultivating relationship service providers. And so they, the study had three major conclusions. And so, again, the first one was um, there are some themes that parents go through when they are learning of their child's disability. And, again, you know, that's more the whole psychological kind of um, aspect of that, that they have to really adapt to that their child has a developmental issue and they talked about those external and internal factors. The second one is the one that I'm really talking about. In this study, this is what the conclusion says, that critical positive encounters with professionals are vital to facilitating positive parent adaptation, meaning that if you are Debbie Downer when you deal with a family and if you aren't encouraging and if you aren't hopeful, that that could really characterize um, a parent. Um, I don't want to reach here for things in the study, but it could really impact how a parent feels about their child's potential. Mm-hmm. That if they have therapists that say, you know, we're going to work on this together, you can do this, there's potential here, there's hope here, 
that even one person who's positive like that can really influence how a parent feels and how a parent is able to adapt to learning that their child has a developmental issue. And so I think that is huge, huge, huge information for us, especially early intervention providers, because we often are the first um, professional that a parent will develop a relationship with or a week-to-week or month-to-month or whatever you do, you're not going to just see the therapist a couple of times like you might a specialist who's a physician. You're going to see that person more regularly, and then to me that means that we have more responsibility in helping a parent work through those feelings and in certainly, excuse me, providing that positive experience and that, that hope. And so I just felt incredibly moved by this and I think too that I got a little note with it attached you know you were this person for me that helped me really internalize a lot of this (laughs) (laughs) so my feelings yeah that's really good (laughs) (laughs) but you know and I'm not trying to toot my own horn here but you know she's not the first mom to ever say that to me I you know get a ton of feedback and again not just from and I'm being given this wonderful position and this wonderful platform of not just families that I work with personally, but through TeachMeToTalk.com and then through the conferences and, you know, really around the world with now the podcast and, you know, through, again, things I've written and the DVDs and the books and all that, you start to realize and, and sometimes you don't really think about how even even a, a web post can change how somebody feels about their child. And I get emails like that that will say, you know, thank you so much for in a really specific article, or they'll say, and Kate, this will freak you out, on show number blah, 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 that you and Kate talked about blah, 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 that totally changed how I interacted with my child. And now, you know, and then they'll go on to tell me some kind of positive consequence from that. And so I just think it's great that we have a study, a small study, but a study, that a study really, that <laughs> yeah, it really validates that, that what we do makes a difference, especially when we take the time to really walk a parent through and you know how we talk about meeting kids where they are developmentally I think we have to meet parents where they are and their kind of acceptance process or you know especially through that evaluation when they're not really knowing if there is a problem and they're still kind of trying to they're still maybe in denial a little bit with oh no they're going to just tell me everything's fine and I have nothing to worry about you know and and I know when I'm saying this that anybody listening to me who's done this job for more than two weeks knows what I'm talking about here because you can see it written all over a parent's face when they're hoping against hope that you're going to say there's nothing to worry about, he's completely fine. And they're hoping, you know, that you're going to be able to bring out the magic wand, you know, while they're, you know, it's like I I say this in the conferences, sometimes I think a mom or dad will think, I'm going to go in the kitchen and when I come back, I want you to have taken out your magic therapy wand and take him talk. And, you know, it's not like that. And parents have to work through all of those feelings. And I think we can be such an important 
part of that and really influence it positively. And that doesn't mean not telling the truth. That's hard when you're really giving terrible news and when you're saying, gosh, this is really serious here. You know, you can't, I don't mean giving a parent inaccurate information or non-objective information or certainly covering up the truth about where a kid might be functioning. But I do think that when we say to parents, even when it's terrible, when we're pointing out, you are doing the best you can and you you have your child in therapy and you are further down the road, you know you're going to be further down the road than you would have been had you done nothing. And so I think when we give parents those messages, even if it's not everything's going to be okay, he's completely typically developing, all those things that parents want to hear, even when we can't say that because it's not true, we still can um, be uh, a a bit of positive uh, interjection into that pretty terrible, life-changing news that a parent might be getting about the child. All right, you've got to say something here because I'm just rambling on and on. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you did help me come in a little bit more clearly on what exactly the study says. So, but, I mean, I think, yes, I don't have any problem uh, believing that having a positive nurturing, um, you know, connection to somebody who can help you in your path, along your path, has got to be something that only helps the outcome. Well, I know that you're not wanting to toot your own horn here today, Kate, but I know that on teams that you have been on, that mothers will directly say to you and dads too, I'm sure it's happened with a dad, but they'll say, I am so glad I had you, or you were the only person on this team who seemed to like my kid, or you had the best connection with him versus blah, blah, blah. And I think that's what the study is talking about. And, you know, and I mean, I'm extrapolating a little bit, but when you when a parent says to a therapist, you've gotten him to to do more than anybody else has, or you seem to love him. Mm -hmm. Or he really loves you. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, that's what they mean. That's what this study is really really talking about. Even one person in a sea of negative encounters, even one person who is their glimmer of hope can make a huge huge difference and so I mean I think that just gives us a reason to get up in the morning knowing that okay this parent really may struggle for a long time with this child this 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 child may have indeed have a lifelong issue but just having even one positive provider can make a big difference in how a parent adjusts to that and in how they feel empowered was the word in the study, or qualified, or like there's a reason to go on and keep working and do everything they can to help their child, you know, reach his or her optimal outcome, whatever that might be. And I just think it's great to have that written in black and white, and I think it's something that I hope grad schools 
are sharing with therapists and really emphasizing that that personal positive encounter can really change a whole kid's course of the rest of his little life because you um, took the time to get to know that mom or dad and really um, help change um, not necessarily how they feel about it, but just that they don't feel like there's no hope. And so I thought it was great. Very inspirational to me, as you can tell. Yes. Well, it is what what is, you know, one of the wonderful things about what we do is having that feeling like, oh, I was able to help. So. <laughs> yeah. It's one of the reasons we do this job. So mm-hmm. I thought it was and I loved it. And if Sarah, if you're listening, thank you for sending that to me. You can tell how much it meant to me, and it just made my day, week, month, year. It was, it was great. It's great to get that article on that little note. All right, so moving right along, the next day after I got this, got that sweet email with the study attached, the next day I read this article, and it was from Huffington Post. Kate, I don't know if you've had a chance to look at this one or not. It's Seven Things You Don't Know About a Special Needs Parent. And I thought it was so great. It's written by a mom whose little boy has a genetic disorder. And these articles are all linked on teachmetotalk.com. I did look at it. Yeah. And so for anyone listening, if you want to go read these specific articles, if you have not seen these yet, please take the time to do that. And I think they're certainly worth thinking about and posting to your own pages and sharing with families. But this one really resonated with me because thinking about, you know, the one that I read the previous day, that one positive encounter can change the world, you know, for a kid. Then I'm reading this one the next day, which is very realistic and very honest and almost painful to read this mom's um what she wrote about being the parent of a little boy with some really significant developmental challenges. And so there are seven things that she wants to share. She wishes that other people just instinctively knew. And, you know, the first one is I am tired, and I think that's so true. It's true of nearly every parent of a newborn or a toddler, but it's especially true when your child has, uh, pretty significant developmental issues, and it, with or without the medical part. And I think if you have the medical part too, say there are you know, feeding issues and there are physical issues where the kid, the child is not, you know, his motor skills are affected, so he's not learning how to move on his own. You know, that increases the whole level of dependence on a mom, and you know, because their child isn't able to do uh, things for himself. As you think about the normal progression of a child moving from being totally dependent on her at two days old. And then, you know, we have moms that whose, whose children don't make those developmental gains, so they're still doing that 24-7 kind of care, even on a two-year-old or a four-year-old or a six-year-old. And that's really um, physically and emotionally overwhelming. And so she starts it with, I'm tired. And I think that that's such an important um, consideration that we need as therapists that we need to think about when we're helping moms and dads and working with them and just how physically and emotionally drained 
lots of our parents are when we see them. Are you going to interject here or no? Um, you want me to keep going? Well, like you said, the whole um, letter kind of, it's kind of a personal essay on, you know, her innermost feelings about having a child with uh, pretty significant special needs. And, yeah, the tired one, I thought it was, I, I probably wouldn't have started there, but I haven't lived that life. I've only seen it secondhand, but tired is, makes probably the most sense for number one. But they're I all... Think, I think it does. I think it does yeah. make the most sense. Yeah. And I think, mm-hmm. I mean, just just when I'm tired, that colors everything else about what I do. Right. <laughs> all of my interactions. Uh, and so I can't, you know, I haven't, like you just said, I haven't lived that life. I, we see it. We certainly see that with the moms and dads of our little clients. But it's and a I, yeah, I mean, I, 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 it would be a very hard life, you know. Yeah. And so she goes on to talk about, too, and, you know, this article is just raw with, her emotions, and she just so openly mm-hmm. shares, you know, number two is I'm jealous, and she shares how difficult it is to see typically developing children or even other special needs kids who have an easier time than her child, and again, that was kind of, I'm reading directly from there, so um, anybody send me an email about saying special needs kids instead of kids with special needs, okay? All right, so <laughs> moving right along. She says that it, it, you know, she has pangs of jealousy and those just those feelings of this is not fair when she sees other children, and she says, you know, when other moms are talking about their children's accomplishments or if they're complaining about their typically developing children, that that really, you know, gets her on a whole new level, and and I can imagine that it would. And so I think it's important for us as therapists, again, to think about our parents as real people with these huge jobs that never, a lot of times, lighten up or go away. I mean, it is a constant there and that we don't always consider that tough emotional place from from where mom is operating from uh, when we're dealing with parents and when we're thinking about them and when we're helping them and when we're talking about it. You know, I, I just thought this was a really great article to read and uh, kind of put ourselves where this mom is physically and mentally and emotionally. I just thought it was great. She went on to say she's scared. She says her, um, you know, she's scared about her child's future. She doesn't know if he's going to grow up and drive and get married and live independently and all those things. And, I, you know, that that's a huge issue. A lot of times, Kate, don't you have parents, even during the assessment process, ask you things like that? Right. And, you know, we don't and know. We don't know, but, yeah, you know certainly a normal thing to think about for your child so exactly exactly yeah her go ahead i'm sorry oh no go ahead 
I was going to say her fifth thing is, and a lot of parents get so personally wounded uh, when they hear words that people just throw around that are, you know, that people just say mindlessly like retarded and short bus. And she really talked about how it bothers her when when she hears a mom say something, like when somebody asks a pregnant mom, you know, uh, you know, in anticipation of the baby, or do you want a boy or a girl or anything? And the mom will say something like, well, as long as it's healthy. And she said that to her really hurts her because she, with her own little boy, she would think, well, he's not healthy. Would you not want him? And so, again, I don't know that I've ever thought about that particular line or that. I don't think um, I have either. And I always... I mean, I've said that and felt that way and didn't mean it that way, but right, I can see right. why you, she might feel really offended by that. I can, too. And, again, it really struck me because I don't know that anybody's ever, I've ever heard anybody say that or put it in that way, but her response is, you will be okay. You and your child will have a great, great life. And so I think that it, it, she sums it up with, you know, wanting to say to people, even if that did happen, like it has with her, you'll be able to move on and function and even thrive with that. Um, She goes on to say that she's human, meaning that she um, gets really frustrated sometimes. She wants to do her own thing, you know, and have her own life, which, you know, I think every mom can relate to, but particularly thinking about for a mom that that might be even more challenging for. Uh, so that was that was something she's, you know, admitting. Sometimes I get cranky. My son irritates me. And sometimes I just want to flee to the spa or go shopping. And certainly, you know, that would be something that she would or, you know, something that she's conveying there. She's not perfect in this whole endeavor and... Um, you know, she certainly is allowed to have those feelings like everyone else. And then she has the, I, I loved this one, and I can see this written all over mom sometimes, the whole dilemma, I want to talk about my child versus it's hard to talk about my child. And she says that when people ask her really general questions, like, how's he doing? She'll just say something like good or, you know, give a generic response versus, if someone asked her something really specifically like, did he have a good time at the zoo, that would be easier for her to talk about um, because she doesn't always know or even understand what she, what other people want to know or even what she might feel comfortable in sharing. And I think I see that in mom's faces when I'm asking them, you know, if I'm saying something like, how's it going versus, how did you do with blah, 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 blah. And it's really specific, you know, something that's really specific to that child. And I think as a therapist, it's really important to remember that, too. We need to ask very detail-oriented and pointed questions rather than that just generic, how's it going or how's he doing. I thought it was a great article, though. I'm glad you got a chance to look at it. I did look at it. Yeah, it uh, each one I thought, oh, oh, you know, <laughs> it was made me think on a lot of them. Just wow, yeah, that would be so hard. Yeah, that would be, you know, 
not that I've, I've never thought about it, but the way she, and I guess, she, yeah, she's the mom, definitely. Um, it says that it's it's really plain that, yeah, that would be very, very hard. Yeah, I think she's a great writer. She must be, and I mm-hmm. try to kind of look through the other things that she had written. Um, but I think she does a really great job of kind of, you know, stripping it all down and getting right to the heart of the matter and really, um, again, being pretty exposed and vulnerable about how she really, really feels and how hard it is. So I just thought it was great, and I think it, it, you know, it's great that she shared that. And I think we as therapists, again, we're around children with special needs, and we, that's certainly part of our everyday lives. But it is totally different to be on the other side of that and live it as a parent. Um, and I know that's something that I thought of. And I know as parent, as therapists, you know, we, you know, we feel like it's our our job to educate parents and teach them what they should be doing. And then because of that, sometimes we get a little bent out of shape if we feel like, you know, oh, she could do a better job at this or this family can manage this better without really thinking, okay, she's going to be the mom of a little boy with autism forever. This is just one little, (laughs) one client of mine, you know, one little part of my life versus this is her whole world. And so sometimes I don't think, you know, and we may not do it. I know we don't do it intentionally. I know we don't. But sometimes we don't take into consideration all that a mom is feeling and dealing with and all that. And sometimes we can get a little, um, you know, forget that and a little, be a little short-sighted about, you know, oh, this therapy is really important and you've got to do this and you've got to do that and you've got to make more progress because of this and if you would just change this without really considering all that that mom is dealing with. So, again, I, I think it's a great article. I have printed it, and it's on my desk, and I'm vowing I will never take it off my desk because every time I clean it, I want to make sure that I get and remember it and have that little <gasps> feeling like you talked about, like, oh, my gosh, forgot about this, because I think it's a real reality check for us as therapists. Yes, it did. I, I really... Um... I don't want to say I was bummed, but it did kind of just make me, as you say, think about, well, <sighs> kind, of, kind of a little more slack, trying to be their positive uh, influence because they could probably exactly. use yeah. that, And that's why I was thinking of these things together, and mm-hmm. I'm so glad that I got one and then I got the other because it really, in my mind, kind of solidified that connection with making sure that we are positive and encouraging and meet the parent where they are. Um, so, and, and again, that reminder of what that might be and what that might feel like. Um, I, I was I was glad that I had the opportunity to read those things, you know, within 24 hours of each other and connect them in my mind so that I won't forget that. So. If you're just listening to us and you're away from your computer now, please check out TeachMeToTalk.com's Facebook page so that you too can read that article and print it and save it so that you can take a look at that from time to time to really remember um, and empathize with the parents that that we're working with. All right, moving right along. This was an article that I think is related to this too, 
that um, I saw today. I'm not sure who originally posted it on Facebook because it's been shared a lot of times now on the people that I follow or, or that I'm friends with on Facebook. But this last one, did you take a look at this, Kate? Many nonverbal children with autism overcome severe language delays. Mm-hmm. And this I did. study, yeah, and this study really says, and it's really based on a lot of, I've seen this written before, and I know that this is something that parents of children with autism are told. If your child is not talking by the time he's four or five, He's not ever going to talk. And so they kind of tell people, if he's still nonverbal then, you know, sorry, he's just not likely to talk. Now, I read several years ago a book called Play to Talk by James McDonald, who's a Ph.D. speech pathologist from Ohio. And in the book, the thing that really stuck with me is never give up on speech. And when I read that, I mean, it really just stopped me dead in my tracks. And I just thought about it and thought about it and thought about it and thought about it for, you know, days and weeks and months after I read it. And now that I'm thinking Play to Talk, I think it might have even been before I read that book. I think it might have just been on his website at communicatingpartners.org. But it was really... um, Something, again, sometimes, you know, you'll hear a phrase or somebody will say something that you believe too, but it's just worded so perfectly that you think, that's it. He's right. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. And that's how I felt about never give up on speech. And so, and I think we as early interventionists, you know, we've joked here on the show, you know, when a school-age kid is old to us, you know, we primarily work with birth to three, and then I do see some kids that are, you know, three and four, and then by the time they're five, I'm really, you know, hugging their moms, and we're having that joyful departure where I'm saying, I love you, but you really have to see somebody else because I specialize in babies and toddlers, and she's grown up. She's got to see somebody else. And so, uh, you know, we don't, or I don't, see, and I know you don't either, don't see children who are school-aged and beyond. And But I, I have thought and thought and thought about reading that that Dr. McDonald said. And so today when I saw this article, it really reminded me of this. And then just, I've already shared that experience that I had on Saturday when I did that meeting um, at the Down Syndrome Conference, and that mom of that 10-year-old, you know, said to me, what am I going to do? And I just automatically said, never give up on speech because that's so ingrained. (laughs) in who I am and what I believe about kids and their development and what their potentials are. Now, that's not to say that we don't tell parents when a child has a condition or a diagnosis that would make it more difficult for him to learn how to talk. Or, You know, I quote the statistics, too, and I think the statistics for autism, I don't know if they're in this article or not, but the, the one that I know is that 30% of children diagnosed with autism will not become functional communicators. And so while we are hopeful and while we are doing everything in our power to help a child especially get those prerequisites in place, especially get social stuff going and get that receptive and cognition foundation built, you know, and again, I think it's early interventionists. Those are our huge, huge, huge jobs 
that we're given to make sure that we lay that foundation very fatherly and that parents understand those prerequisites have to happen before we hear those first words. Even if I'm sharing with a parent a statistic, like, you know, when a parent says to me, oh, my gosh, there are some autistic kids who never talk, right? And you have to say yes. You have to say yes. You know, the statistics are that about a third won't. But then you go on to say, but here's what we're going to do to work on the things that we know will make it more likely for him to communicate. Now, this study, too, did give some qualifiers for the children who weren't talking at that point and then did um, acquire some speech. Most of those children also had a higher IQs. And they measured that with those nonverbal IQ tests, and they had lower deficits in social skills. So what does that mean in real life? They weren't as significantly affected, or um, their social interaction was still pretty good, comparatively speaking, and they were learning, and they had some um, either just some natural cognitive ability that they had some, um, oh, let's see, what's a better way to say this? I'm struggling. Kate, help me. How would we talk about their cognitive smartness impaired? Their ability to learn. Is that a good enough way to say it? Their ability to learn? Is that what you said? I'm trying to talk about cognitive skills, yeah. Yeah. It. I mean, the, the, from what I got from it, they were saying that based on how socially connected or disconnected a child on the spectrum might be, plus their cognitive skills. And like you said, if you take out the language stuff, that would be more visual type things, like matching by color or matching by a shape or doing puzzles or, you know, any number of they had a visual. Yeah. Yes. They're, they're doing better on those things, Yeah, which kind of makes sense. You know, that that would be a factor. (laughs) We talk about that all the time. You know, you have to, children that we see that aren't really meeting those cognitive milestones are at more risk. I mean, I I highlighted all the really kind of, um, you know, pre-academic type stuff, but also in that would be what does the play look like before that? Do they do functional play stuff? Can they do any early pretend play stuff? So not just the, you know, visual stuff, but how do they play? Look at their play. Where are they functioning play-wise? Do they understand? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Are they learning their routines at home? You know, is this a kid who... Uh, even if he can't communicate with you that he wants to drink, is he able to go in and pull the chair over to the refrigerator and figure out a way to wrangle that door open and try to get it himself? You know, these are kids that are problem solvers and that are kind of, that are not kind of, they're remembering what's happened in the past and they're using that information to um, change their world, to make, to, to, you know, make things happen. There, You can see evidences of all those cognitive things that Kate talked about, even in their real lives. And they didn't specify that as I'm reading this article, but you're just trying to say that's what they mean by 
higher cognitive skills. Right. Yeah. And so, and that's important information to share with parents when you're talking to parents about, you know, and a mom is saying, is he ever going to talk? You know, that might be a positive thing that you would say, you know, as you're sharing, again, what might be pretty dismal information, you might say, I know he's still not talking, but let's look at how his cognitive skills are moving along. And I know he's still not talking, but let's talk about his social skills. Let's let's look at what he is doing that would tell us that he's more likely to be able to acquire speech down the road, even if it's not right now. And so, again, I'm not saying that we're not ever truthful. If we have children for whom those things are not happening, you can't make it up. You can't exaggerate it. You can't, you know, have your rose-colored glasses on all the time so that nothing is ever truthful or objective or real. But you, you know, you can share those things as positive indicators and have that, um, again, backed up by this research study. Um, and that's yeah. what's published today. So that's cutting edge. It's at autismspeaks.org. From the journal. Well, and I thought it was pretty cool because it really just kind of says what, like you said, what we're always kind of talking about. I mean, it kind of is a study that supports, and not specifically, I'm just saying theoretically, loosely, tangentially, your um, teaching verbal imitation. You know what I mean? Yeah. It really kind of says, yeah. <laughs> what we did, yeah. 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 So, yeah, I thought that was cool. That I know it's cool when you get research back up what you already do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's again, Autism Speaks Org is a fabulous website. And when parents will say to me, "Do you think he might have autism?" and we're having that difficult conversation, and I say, "I've been worried about that too." I want to give you some resources so that we can start to look at this together and you can read some stuff and then next time I see you, we can talk about it. You can email me, you know, and you start to help a parent down that road of thinking about it. AutismSpeaks.org has great references for parents. And so, again, anytime a parent says that to me, that's one of the first resources that I try to point them to. There are some checklists that they can um, take in the privacy of their own home. Uh, And again, it's so that they are working through this whole process and starting to uh, cope and to realize what might be going on with their child. I just think there's some great things. There's the charts that I'm talking about are the little online questionnaires. It's in a tab called Screen Your Child. And so, again, that's an important uh, part of that website for a therapist to know, to be able to say to a mom, you know, why don't you take some of these tests and let's talk about it next time I come. And, again, know that you're not – a lot of speech pathologists get really hung up on this. With, I can't diagnose autism. Or, I can't diagnose praxia, blah, blah, blah. We point parents in the right direction. We share information and we answer their questions. You know, when somebody says, I think it's unethical to tell a parent, you know, that their child to diagnose or I think it's unethical, you know, 
my comeback to that is always, I think it's unethical not to do that, <laughs> to be worried about a child and to have information for them and to, you know, not share what I know about those things. And so anytime a, a therapist asks me about that, I always say, err on the side of information sharing. You are not specifically saying, you know, this is your child's diagnosis, good luck. You're talking with that parent. You're helping them work through this process. You are, you know, their partner in uncovering what's going on with their child. And so I think AutismSpeaks.org, again, is a great tool for therapists who are often that first line of contact or that first point when a parent might get brave enough to say, do you think he could be autistic? That's always um, a website that I, I refer to, and I think they do great work. They're really great about their outreach, too. They get a lot of good publicity. So I think right. that's super. Right. Yeah, and yeah, everything. It, and they it's have kind of the big autism site, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Uh-huh. And it's... It, um, they have a really balanced approach, too, that so much of their, almost everything on their site is for parents, but there's enough science there that it's a great source of information for a therapist as well. So, again, if a, if a therapist is saying to me, I remember that girl that we had lunch with, like, oh, how long ago was that, 10 years ago, that she said she worked in early intervention for a long time, but she had never had a kid on her caseload with autism. <laughs> Do you remember that day? You know, do you remember I remember. I mean, we could uh, now if we were having that. You know, we both were looking at each other like, "Oh yes, you have. You just didn't know." Mm-hmm. Um, I'm braver now, and I'm more polished. And I probably would have said, "Hey, have you ever been to AutismSpeaks.org? They have great information about autism since you've not had a lot of experience with that. That might be a site that you really want to check out and spend some time on." And that's how I would approach that now versus you and I just looking at each other going, what? No personal story there. So, again, how does this story or this article tie in with what we've already talked about? It's so relevant in that we need to help parents get that same the same information with never give up on speech, and again, even if it doesn't look that great, you're still sharing information in a very objective way, and you're still saying, well, I know that the statistics say that 30% of these children might not talk, but we don't know where your little guy's going to fall, and here are the things that we can point out as his positives, here are the things that I would look at as weaknesses, and here's where we get some we're still, even when we're sharing devastating and negative information, that we are still helping them work through that process and being as personally positive and encouraging as we can be uh, while still telling the truth professionally. I think that would be the best way I could sum that up. So I think those were three great articles. And, again, they are linked on com Facebook page if you um, take a look at that later to our listeners. All right, Kate, it's 4 o'clock. And thank you, for, you, thank you to... for being a connoisseur of research so that you can get the good studies that 
are relevant to me and just tell me to read them. And I do, so that works out perfectly. <laughs> they were good. I like them. I really like those kinds of things. And, boy, I tell you, the Internet makes it a lot easier than it used to be. Oh, so boy. Yeah, and even social media like that fluff Facebook stuff, you can still get a lot of professionally relevant information even on some silly pastime like Facebook. So thank goodness for modern technology. <laughs> I think that does okay. it for today. Next week we have okay. a great caller. We have a caller who's uh, a therapist who's asking questions about apraxia and sharing that information with parents. So it's going to be a great Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.